0: Welcome to B2B Power Hour, where we dive deep into the real sales issues that stop you from making a good living in the profession we love. We discuss how to get, keep, and grow customers by unpacking the prospecting and selling techniques that work in 2023, the ones that you want in your personal OS as a seller. Forget the hustle. It's time for a Power Hour. Now, on to today's episode. Today, we're diving into sales leadership, how it fails and how it might succeed with Matt Green, the CRO at Sales Assembly. He's got a great perspective by working with hundreds of sales leaders in his role and also his own experience in sales. And I cannot wait for this conversation. So let's dive on in. Matt, thanks for coming on the
1: B2B Power Hour. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Morgan. I'm excited to talk a lot about failure, a topic that I know a lot about firsthand.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Now, I will say, before we get to the meat of today, if people don't follow you on LinkedIn, I have to just plug it now because... The your comments and the banter you have with sales leaders all over LinkedIn is probably some of the most entertaining content on my feed. So thank you for keeping me laughing
1: (laughs) as I read through comments. Yeah. (laughs) No, thank you for, for saying that. I'm glad it resonates with at least one person. It it is an interesting strategy to spend your, your day insulting your, your clients and hopefully soon to be clients. Mm -hmm. But, um, It's, uh, it's just the way I roll, right? (laughs) So people are going to have to, uh, to learn to live with it.
0: Well, it certainly seems to be working. I think (laughs) I like it. It's most people wouldn't, uh, play that close to fire basically. And I think it works out well for you. So
1: (laughs) yeah, people have to know what they're walking into when they start working with us. So for better or for worse, you know, this is what it's like to interact with Matt at sales assembly.
0: I think it's for the better for sure. (laughs) So to sort of kick off this conversation. I've been asking a variation of this question a lot, and I think it's a great place to start, which is in your view or in your experience, what do you think expert sales leaders do that the
1: novice ones or the new ones don't? Yeah, that's an interesting question. one thing that that jumps to mind is just this sense of balance, right? You know, a, a, an effective sales leader is one, he or she is going to be able to balance a whole lot of different things at once. And, you know, distilling it down even further, long-term strategy versus short-term results, right? You know, that's what we see a lot of, especially when people take on their first set of leadership responsibilities, they tend to be a little bit too reactive. In nature and, and it's understandable right because if you were promoted into a leadership role for the first time you have directive coming down from on high so to speak and you're sort of taking that directive as gospel even though that directive you know one day might be conflicting with directive that you had received maybe 24 or 36 or 48 hours prior so you see a lot of leaders you know they, they tend to spin around right? Just sort of in circles, you know, that that whole adage where if you pivot too many times, you're just going in a big circle. You see a lot of that uh, from newly promoted leaders when it comes to long-term thinking, or I should say lack thereof. And then, you know, a close second, and and we know that there's especially troubling for newer leaders is lack of communication skills, right? And, And, you know, more specifically, how can you take uh, larger concepts, themes, initiatives, and just the way that any competent salesperson would distill that down to communicate to a prospect. You know, how do you take and uh, distill a lot of this corporate speak down into something that a sales rep, a member of your team is going to be able to understand and execute on and just as importantly, if not more importantly, how do you handle difficult conversations? right? You know, that's also a competency where we see a lot of newly promoted sales leaders. They tend to miss the mark because these are not conversations that they've been required to have before.
0: That's interesting, especially that last note. That's really interesting even to return to balance. Cause I feel like a lot of like when you're in the trenches, there's, it's not like a checklist. I know some companies <laughs> do have sort of like a, a daily checklist for their sales reps, but you know, there's sort of a set of activities that you're expected to do on the day-to-day or the week-to-week. And then when you move into leadership, that set of responsibilities changes. And what it sounds like is there's maybe a lot more uncertainty on what that day-to-day looks like or that week-to-week look like. And then you end up spinning in circles or, or as you said, pivoting too many times that you just end up in a circle anyways.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's not only much more uncertainty, but a lot of people don't really realize that until they step into the role and they actually, you know, really dive into it, there's a whole lot more responsibility, right? And even if you are, you know, just in, in air quotes, just a frontline manager, right? You know, how you coach and develop your team and your ability or inability to have difficult conversations with people on your team, you know, that not only impacts your role as a leader, that impacts everybody else on the team, Right. You know, now you, you, when, when you are an individual contributor, you know, at the end of the day, you're responsible for one person, one person only that's yourself. That's your number that you are held accountable to hit week after week, month after month, quarter after quarter, you know, as a sales leader, that's leading a team, you know, I mean, you are part of the larger cog in the wheel. That is this organization, you know, if individuals or or multiple people on your team, you know, begin performing at lower standards, That impacts everybody else's paycheck, right? Not only your own, but also other folks across the organization, not just confined to within your specific team. And I think that is lost on a lot of people when they first take that first step into leadership is how much of an impact their ability or inability to lead their team effectively is going to have on the broader organization. That's really interesting.
0: It's hitting home since, you know, we we interact with sales and sales leadership a lot where it's not really just about the team you lead. It's, you know, sales is a function of the entire company. And the and the, the ripple effects can be felt everywhere, which makes it seem like <laughs> this role is really important, either a really high level or a frontline manager. But I wanted your take on this. It doesn't seem like it's trained all that well. Like leadership period, I think there's, you know, there's all of the leadership sort of coaching and and training period, but especially in sales, since it's uh. As you pointed out, there's like coaching skills required. I see that a lot. Even this is an interesting, I don't know, it coexists also with like sales enablement documentation also has a lot of very, there's not like here. I remember asking a lot of sales enablement leaders, like, do you have a template? And the answer was like, nope, I reinvented the wheel at my company. To sort of fold this in together, where do you see the responsibility of training sales leaders lie within the organization. Like at the end of the day, who should really be taking charge of that role?
1: Ooh, that's an interesting question. My gut reaction says that depending on the the level of sales leader, right? And you know, all all this should come down from the executive level, right? You know, just like anything else that is cultural within the organization, because that is what we are talking about here. We're talking about a culture of learning and development, a culture of coaching, a culture of sales readiness. You know, that does have to start at the very tippy top of the pyramid, so to speak. So you are talking about the executive level leadership, whether that's sales leadership or otherwise. So that's where it has to start as far as how it's executed and implemented. You know, depending on the size and scale, of the organization, we do work with a lot of companies that hold that have entire enablement teams, you know, such as they are. Even if it's only a couple people, that's built out specifically to build on leadership development, right? You know, teaching new leaders, be it in sales, customer success, or even a non-revenue generating role, how to be more effective people leaders and people managers across the organization. But again, to answer your question in short, long-winded way of saying that's like anything else that is going to stick within the company and be successful has to start at the very top, you know, because the folks at the top are the ones who create a culture within the organization.
0: It brings to mind, I suppose, sort of the inverse of a (laughs) of what we just painted, which is when sales cultures becomes toxic. And I wanted to dwell here for a little bit, because which I agree with you, if culture definitely flows from the top and at least the. The basics are set by the executive leadership, and then it needs to be reinforced and built throughout the entirety of the organization. Why do toxic
1: sales cultures exist, in your view?
0: Is it just leadership? Is it something else?
1: Yeah, at the end of the day, it might sound like too simplistic of an answer. Toxic cultures exist because toxic leaders exist. And in my mind, it is really as simple. Is that you you do have leaders that through, uh, let's operate under the presumption that it's not by intention, right? But it still is the reality that there is, you know, a culture of, you know, dishonesty, you know, a culture of mismanaged expectations, you know, a culture of lack of coaching and development. Um, And again, going back to the conversation that we had a moment ago, that all starts at the top right? You know, it is, and that is one of the biggest responsibilities of a leader, um, whether you're frontline or the further up the the proverbial ladder that you go. A lot of these folks really, again, even if they've been in seat for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, they have no idea or no cognizant idea of how much every action they take on a day-to-day basis impacts the culture within their company. You know, I, it, It was a couple of years ago, I was talking with a sales leader who I really do respect. And I asked him, you know, we were talking about the definition of culture. We're talking about like, okay, well, what does culture mean? Right. You know, it's not cold brew on tap. It's not catered (laughs) lunches, you know, what does culture mean and how do you build a culture? And he said something that has always stuck with me even seven, eight years later. He's like, culture is the result. If you're a leader, culture, culture is the result of every single decision that you make every day. Right. How quickly do you respond to an email? What is the tone of that response? When you pass somebody in the hallway, you know, do you smile and say hi to them? Or do you just walk by and look like as though you have something important on your mind? You know, it's just small, super tactical things like that. Again, how quickly do you respond to an email from someone on your team that impacts the culture within your organization? Right. So you take something as small as granular as that and you extrapolate that into bigger and bigger decisions or bigger and bigger you know, consequences of, of decisions that are made within the organization. That's what creates culture, right? So again, going back to, to the point that I made a few moments ago, I think that toxic cultures, you know, I'm going to go on the limb and presume that no one sets out to create a toxic culture, a toxic sales culture, but they end up doing so just because they're not really cognizant of the fact of like, hey, all these micro decisions that I'm making on a day-to-day basis are sort of having this waterfall effect across the entire organization.
0: I want to expand with you on this a little bit, which is over the past, well, three years really, we've had this shift towards remote sales workforces. And I feel in some ways, the teams that we've seen have been under-equipped to deal with building culture in a remote era where... I know a bunch of sellers have taken jobs. You know, they haven't... It used to be you took a job, maybe you had to move because the headquarter was, you know, the company was somewhere else or it was like a special exemption or they had like a small satellite office in your city. And so they were hiring in the state. But now all those rules have just been blown open. And so you might have a sales team distributed across seven states or uh, even multiple countries anymore. So in a remote era, like a lot of the talked about some like uh, prompt, some tactical stuff, some, you know, being prompt on responding to, to folks inquiries or, or people on your team in a remote era, what else can sales leaders do to build and reinforce a healthy culture when, you know, their sales team maybe isn't all in the same office?
1: Yeah, I, I'd say two things. Number one, you, you cannot discount the impact of communication, any communication is going to have on the culture of the team. Always veer on the side towards over-communicating versus under-communicating across the board. You know, every decision, every topic, make sure that you're over-communicating to your team because that makes them feel as though that they're a part of something. But then uh, on the other side, I do think it's critical, whether you're in office or managing a fully distributed team, you have to get to the root causes or the root motivations, I should say, of each individual that that makes up your team and you have to find ways to lean in or to coach towards those motivations and I'm a big believer in the idea that at the end of the day anybody is motivated by three things money mission and recognition right and it's not zero sum it's not either or usually it's a certain percentage if you think of like a pie chart of both you know how much is Matt motivated by recognition versus money um, versus the mission of the organization. It's your responsibility as a leader to really understand what that recipe is that makes up that pie chart of each individual and start coaching again, you know just um, interacting with that person on your team just based on what that pie chart is. Um, not man and, and that that is where as you can imagine, we've seen a lot of sales leaders struggle even to this day even though we've been, and primarily a fully distributed or at least hybrid environment for the past three years is they still tend to communicate with individuals on their team in in one sort of fashion across the board, right? Not keeping in mind like, hey, this is a team built up of individuals. And if we're not going to be all in office together, we're not going to be able to support each other in the traditional way. We have to take some additional steps to make sure that this individual feels as though I, his or her sales leader, is you know really cognizant about what is important to them and again just showing through my actions versus only my words that i'm supporting them in this that or the other way again that makes up this pie chart that we discussed before
0: it's really interesting way i like it's money mission recognition that's the pie chart it brings to mind this sort of classic tale. I'm sure you've heard this. It gets tossed around a lot where the all-star individual uh, contributor gets promoted to manager. And I I wonder if there's that uh, cognitive bias or it's just mirroring like I'm motivated this percentage by money and this percentage by recognition and this percentage by mission. And so I'm going to coach my team as if everybody acts like that. Is that a fair assessment of why the all-star manager doesn't go right without coaching? Or is there other things that go on in that promotion?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. And, and it's similar to how companies make mistakes when they hire people that look like them, right? Oh, yeah. it, you know, at least on paper, you know, I went to school, I, you know, played this sport, I'm successful, I want to hire these types of people. Right. And that's, in my opinion, just, you know, far too simplistic of a way of looking at how to make up a team and looking at, you know, what individuals, the competencies, the skill sets that are going to make him or her successful if they join your organization. And same thing again with promotion. Yeah, that, that is something that we see a lot of leaders falling into. It's like, okay, well, I have a sample size of one. If I did well being coached in this type of environment or in this type of way, I know that if I just rinse and repeat that, like here's the missing secret, right? You yeah. know, that's going to make everyone successful. <laughs> you know, reps are, are not coin operated, right? You know, they're, they're not always going to operate in the fashion that you personally might be the most motivated by, right. You know, I could tell you personally that me, you know, when you look at my personal pie chart, recognition has always been, you know, by and large, you know, the, the majority of the pie chart for me, you know, I, I would be more than willing to, and I know this, you know, this is a a sample of, you know, the the privilege that that I've had, you know, leaving, leading sort of a successful, relatively speaking career, you know, I I'd be willing to give up portion of compensation if my name was top of the leaderboard somewhere just because being top of the leaderboard was always going to be and getting that type of recognition being recognized in front of my peers being called out by my by my leader saying like oh hey look at this great thing that matt did in a public forum that to me was always much more fulfilling than like oh wow well you know i should have had an extra 150 dollars in my commission check right right at the end of the month so again really getting to to the root cause of what makes of what motivates people to be successful ignoring that is something that we see a lot of sales leaders um you know sort of falling falling into a trap there mm-hmm. I imagine
0: that it requires some reflection and it requires some intuition for the manager to uh, or or a leader period to sort of piece out those components of the pie chart for each each of their reps. Do you have any like tips of what you should be listening for or looking for? Or better yet, do you just go to your reps and ask them explicitly, <laughs> like, hey, what what's going on? Or uh, any tips for for leaders who are listening to this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that people are if you're naturally an empath, if you're naturally more empathetic and are able to pick up on those signals. You know more so than someone else that then you are gonna have a leg up right but i and granted you know I'm, I'm not a lot of things you know one of them being like a scientist or you know a neuropsychologist whatever it is so i don't know if you could train on empathy right I, you know I, I tend to think that is something that people are much more born with nature versus nurture in the absence of that and you called it out a moment ago i am a big fan of asking right you know as i brought people onto my team In the past, I will ask that basic question. I'll use that pie chart example. Money, mission, recognition. Here's me. Tell me more about you, right? You know, what do you want to see? for And of course, that should be part of a larger conversation as far as what this individual would want to see as part of his or her career, career path, promotion track, or, you know, is it really drilling deep and saying like, hey, do you even want to, you know, you're an individual contributor? I, I loved asking people that would join my team, even want to be in leadership, right? Let me tell you how much it sucks, right? And, you know, (laughs) getting them into a point where they didn't feel because a lot of ICs, you know, when they join a company, they presume and they, you know, maybe they've been taught to believe that, you know, that the people want to hire sales individuals who are aspirational, right? And, And if you're aspirational, what is the logical next step? Oh, it's to go into leadership, Right, So sort of disabusing people of, of that thought process and saying like, hey, there's absolutely nothing wrong with showing up on time, doing the work, making your number, going home at the end of the day and not having to worry about anybody else's problems, right? You know, when the clock hits five o'clock or whatever, Yeah, making sure that people know that that, that, that is a viable option and in some cases the best option, right? Having those types of candid, transparent conversations with folks on your team is always going to be a huge value to a leader.
0: I love that. And I I also love how you articulated sort of folding together some of the original highlights you had talked about, like balance and organization, communication skills, et cetera, and like Actually, working with team members is is fusing all of these things together. It's not just a, oh, I'm going to have a conversation like this today. It's like no, we're we're bringing together all these skill sets in in real time. One thing that I see a lot, and what you had talked about, sort of hitting your number, piqued my interest to ask this question, which is, in a lot of organizations, we see like sales can be the scapegoat for like a failed go to market motion, and Failed go-to-market is a very broad concept, but basically, if our pipeline isn't generating X amount or we're not closing X amount of revenue, it's sales fault. It's nobody else's fault inside the organization. Does that resonate with you? Is that true?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true that people naturally presume that in many cases, or, you know, sort of place a inordinate amount of blame on sales when, you know, the entire go-to-market function itself, you know, might, I don't know if broken is the best term, but might not be a, as fully fleshed out or as well thought out as it could be. But yeah, it, it is a natural byproduct of just being in sales, right? You know, the, the benefit and the curse of sales is that there's nowhere to hide, right? Activity metrics are clear as day. You could track that. The results are clear as day. You could obviously track that. Right. And, and when you take a look at, especially when you're look at the entire go to market motion, all the other things in the funnel, you know, that's where it could get a little bit fuzzy. Yeah. Right. It's like, okay, well, are we talking about impressions or website visits or click-throughs or this you know, th- you know, how many people filled out the how did you hear about us form? You know, that's the kind of stuff where and, and again, I'm not saying that other go to market leaders intentionally do this but again it's natural to to look at impressions you know to pick one sure. you know really high level kind of like vanity metric and be able to sort of craft a story around that that does sound compelling it's like okay well yeah i could see how maybe this is still working you can't really craft a story out of zero close one deals right that is just like no i i did not close anything this month and when when the results are that visible and that binary it either did or it didn't happen you know that's where again it's just natural human nature to look at that and say like okay well an amount of blame is going to be placed on sales because we could see everything as clear as day whereas everything else like hey you know it might kind of be working you yeah. know, don't know for sure but what we do know for sure is that no sales came in last month
0: the thing i continue to think about is like obviously there's so many factors, both within sales and then within other teams inside the go-to-market function that influence, they may not you know, specifically determine or are or the, the linchpin of whether a deal moves to close one or whether a deal is a qualified opportunity. But it doesn't escape me that sales itself is not necessarily responsible for the entirety of all of those factors, like the um, overall targeting, whether marketing's activities are actually driving inbound qualified leads, whether there's a match between the kinds of customers, customer success really thinks are the best customers and the kinds of customers that marketing and sales are going after. It's, you know, there's all these other factors that sort of influence the binary metrics, but aren't necessarily, you know, within... I don't know sales circle of control, if that makes sense. So, like, what's the responsibility of sales leaders to navigate those conversations with other teams? I'm sure you do this in your role as a CRO as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is um, number one that there is a benefit to being part of a great team, right? You know, surrounded by other leaders that are as um, that are as thoughtful as you are, as far as like, okay, well, here's where each of us fit. You know, all these cogs in this larger Machine, You know, I think it's a tough question to answer. I would say that the one big factor that might play into it is really just about setting expectations across the board and coming up clearly with a set of deliverables, right? Uh, Or a set of metrics that each department, sales, marketing, you know, customer success, you know, all these different folks that touch revenue, like here's how we're going to define success. Right. And I think that's where organizations, especially at the early stage when they're building, maybe they're transitioning from founder led sales into an actual true sales organization. Right. That's where a lot of these companies really get tripped up is they don't have they know what success in sales looks like or doesn't look like. They don't really know what success in marketing looks like or in any other or in any other part of the go to market motion looks like and more importantly, how all these kind of interact together, right? You spoke to it a few moments ago, success in marketing. It's one thing to say like, great, well, here's how marketing is going to judge success. Well, how does that really impact sales? Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, well, we got like a whole lot of inbounds, but were they quality inbounds? I mean, you know, where, where did they come from, right? You know, did they fit our ICP? You know, it's those things, making sure that you're operating in sort of a cohesive manner, um, again, especially companies that are new at this, trying to build a go-to-market motion from the ground up, a lot of them miss the mark in that regard. Interesting. Why is that?
0: <laughs> I'd be curious for your take. Like, what what are the main things that you see companies building new or even pivoting their go-to-market motion miss?
1: Yeah, I think that, and again, especially for younger companies, the the transition from founder led to you know an actual sales-led organization is extremely tough um for a number of reasons number one the founder he or she is extremely close to the product you know they're they're extremely passionate about it and how you communicate what the product does and how it impacts you know the the customer the founder he or she is always going to have a lot of really strong opinions as far as like okay here's what the go-to-market motion should look like. And it's easy for them to point to the success that they've had. Like, I've been able to do it this way. Therefore, all we need to do is basically it's like scale a version of me. Right. Right. You know, scale a version of the types of conversations that that I've been having over the past couple of years as we've gotten to a million or two million or five million dollars in revenue. You know, whatever the case may be, I've been able to do this. So it should be easy if we just like build a small team. Of course. Yeah, exactly. But again, you know what what a lot of founders do in, in that stage is they dramatically discount the the impact that being a founder has right? You know, if you're a founder, CEO, more people are going to take your call. You're going to be able to speak more intelligently about the product because you built it, right? You're just going to be able to have different types of conversations that are not scalable. And that's where we see a lot of companies at the really early stage get tripped up is the founder, he or she will say, like, hey, you know, I don't really need like a sales leader. Just hire me like a couple AEs and a couple BDRs, and I'll teach them to be me. And as long as they're somewhere close to me, we're going to be able to take this from X million in revenue to Y million in revenue. And it's usually just never the case.
0: That's an interesting observation. It's a really good insight about the purpose of hiring sales leader, especially, I mean, I'm sure this is generally true, but especially in that transition from founder-led to sales-led, isn't about, oh, <laughs> we're scaling up a sales function. I can do it myself. We just need to. It's also about everything that we've previously discussed in this conversation. It's, do you, you know, as the founder, do you have time for coaching? Are you able to work with, you know, dive into their money mission recognition pie charts, you know, spend time working with them on sales processes? Like there's so many other things that the sales leader is going to be doing on the day to day that. You as the founder or even a product owner, I could imagine, in a larger organization just don't have time to do or, or don't have the skills to do necessarily
1: or the experience to lead the team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, there are always exceptions to the rule, of course. But, you know, especially in our ecosystem, if you're a founder, CEO, you know, you're an engineer, you're an industry domain expert, you know, you, you are an expert in the product that, that you're selling because, again, you're the one that built it right? So you obviously know a thing or two about it, but it, it does really come down to like, okay, is, is the purpose of hiring a sales team to just get the founder CEO more meetings, right? right? You know, which we hear a lot, or is it like, no, we, we got to start building infrastructure, right? You know, we want to start building sales and go to market infrastructure within our business. The latter is something completely different. That's where you need a competent sales leader, right? It, it's just tough because especially when, when you're a young company, really competent uh, sales leaders are going to be expensive. And the ROI is not going to be as clear in this short amount of time as an early stage founder might want because he or she, he or she is just looking at their experience going like, oh, well, God, I mean, sales dropped off once I brought this, you know, this head of sales in to help build this infrastructure, not really come to terms with the fact that it's a much longer game in order to do so.
0: The infrastructure idea brings up something I definitely wanted to chat with you about. I feel like a lot of people make a distinction between, on on a spectrum between process on one end and then sort of people on the other and sort of the inhumane to the humane or, you know, the rigid versus the sort of intuitive. What role does process play in sales leadership? And do you find companies over-index or under-index
1: on the amount of infrastructure and process they build for their sales teams? I think that by and large, the most successful sales organizations are the ones that have more process, not less. But again, you know, we use this term balance a lot throughout our conversation. The balance there is not creating an environment where it feels those everything is process driven right um where it feels like again to to use the analogy that that you spoke to earlier if you're an individual contributor just checking the series of boxes day in and day out and that's where again this overarching term or theme of culture comes into play you know how do you create a culture where everything is diligent and process oriented Right, but at the same time, your reps and your frontline sales leaders feel as though that they're being given enough freedom to test this or test that, right? You know, to accomplish the job in a way that that is befitting with you know their idiosyncrasies, right? You know, that their personal characteristics. Um, so it, it, it's an interesting way where you have to try to find a, an opportunity to hide the process, so to speak which does need to be diligent and really well built out within the day-to-day interactions of your team and how you're coaching them to be successful.
0: That's interesting. I like that insight because I feel in some ways, I can imagine sellers in that transition moment, if they've been with the organization, being resistant to the new process. (laughs) If it doesn't Mm -hmm. map with what they've currently been doing or if they feel it, it restricts their freedom to sell as they they have wanted to sell. But to return to this again, I imagine there's a lot of outsized benefits to having some more structure, even if it's not, you know, at the end of the day, a checklist, but at least having some standardization and workflows internally that makes sense. So I think where I wanted to close this conversation, because we hadn't really um, delved into it too much, you've talked a lot about communication. And I feel like There are a lot of resources out there, but you also have a lot of lived experience as a sales leader and as somebody leading teams. So when you think of through communicating with folks, aside from like the general principles we've talked about at a tactical level, what are some key tips maybe for a new sales leader or key things to revisit continually as you communicate with your team or individuals?
1: You know, I think it, especially in an environment like this, having the the past couple quarters that the ecosystem has had, yeah, transparency is, is the name of the game. Not only sharing what you know as a leader, but also what you don't know. In the absence of communication, in the absence of transparency, people on your team, they're going to fill their mind with, you know, Whatever comes to mind, right? They're, they're just going to start making stuff up. And it's human nature for that stuff that they make up to be worst case scenario, you know, types of thoughts, right? You know, how, you know, I, I can't pull up LinkedIn without seeing, you know, my friends or, you know, people that I know, people whose names I recognize, companies that I thought, you know, had everything figured out going through a second or third round of layoffs. Are we next? Right? How's our company doing? Taking something as significant as that, if you're not providing a level of transparency to the team as far as like, hey, here is how the company is doing. We don't know what the economy is going to be doing over the next couple of quarters. We also don't know this, that, or the other thing. Here's what we do know, right? Just by providing that consistent level of transparency, what is the end result of that going to be? The the folks on your team, they're going to be more confident in their position there because you're removing a whole lot of doubt, right? A, a whole lot of that, you know, that that white space where it's like, hey, you know, what information should, should go in here? They're going to end up being more productive, right? Because not only are they going to be more engaged and motivated employees, they're going to spend less time poking around on LinkedIn, you know, for 30 minutes at the end of the day, like, hey, why don't you take a quick peek at what jobs are available just in case I'm impacted by a riff next week? right? You know, how much time are they going to spend updating their resume, right? Fine-tuning things again, just in case they need it because they see all their friends having to go through this process over the past couple months. So if you're able to dissuade a whole lot of that type of thinking, again, just by over-communicating, and again, not only sharing what you know, but also sharing what you don't know as far as what's going on, that would be a huge boon to sales leaders and their teams right now.
0: I love that. And I love the sounds of that. I'm sure every individual seller listening to this and leader could benefit from a good dose of transparency in their sales organization. Well, Matt, this has been an awesome conversation. I have loved the pointers, the guides that um, you've given us today. If people have questions or they want to learn more, where should they go to find more of you?
1: yeah um if they are dumb enough to want to find more of me um yeah they could always follow me on uh on linkedin i'm I'm easy to find there or they could go to our website salesassembly.com learn more about who we are and uh, and what we do for the go-to-market teams of uh, b2b software companies
0: that's awesome well matt green thank you for coming on this episode of the b2b power hour it has been great
1: to have you thanks for having me morgan this was a blast Are you ready to level up your skills and take on fun challenges with great people
0: that want to see you succeed? Join the One Up Club today. As a member, you get the best insights and takeaways from the show delivered to you every week. Plus, brand new resources developed by our team of sales experts, the team of 10. Go to b2bpowerhour.com slash join to get started today.